who open your word to us and us to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus was asked, of all the commandments, which was the greatest? And he replied in Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, the greatest is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we're going to be unpacking each of those two over the next two weeks. It is, as many of you will know, our annual verse. And we're trying this year to learn how to love God more and to love others more. Now, Jesus, of course, was summarizing what we call the Ten Commandments, and you have them, I hope, open in front of you. The first four of the Ten Commandments, to love God, and the next six, to love others. But you can go further because the first four are in turn to love God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. Just think of it. To have no other gods before Him is to love God with all our heart. To bow down and worship no idols other than Him is to praise and worship Him with all our soul, to love Him with all our soul. To speak of God without misusing our tongue, abusing in any way our language of God, is to love Him with our mind because it's our words which are the chief evidence of our thoughts. What our mind thinks, our tongue speaks. And to order our days, our lifestyle, our work, our rest, and to do so in God's way is to love Him with all our strength. And so we're going to study these in the weeks to come and what it means to love God. My very first realization of this thought of loving God came very early on in my Christian life. I was only a few months old as a new believer in Jesus as a student. And after the summer break, back at university and walking over to supper with one of my newfound Christian friends, I remember asking him, how was your summer? I was expecting a reply like, um, I had a great week on a beach in the south of France or something like that. Instead of which, he turned to me and he said, very simply but with deep feeling, God has been so good to me this summer. I suddenly realized I was into something slightly different from what I'd already accounted, encountered. I had turned to Jesus. I'd put my trust in Him. I'd thanked Him for dying for me. I was trusting the promise of forgiveness. But I suddenly realized here was something else. Here was someone who was not only thanking God, but loving God. Now, the first verse just look at it, and God spoke all these words. They stress right at the outset that these are words of revelation from God. The emphasis is primarily on their source. Their source, first one, is the mouth of God. It's not Moses or anybody else. And the whole Old Testament law, especially in the first five books of the Bible, is summed up in these words, as they're called here in verse 1, 
and came to be known as the Ten Words. They're set as a summary, both the beginning and the heart of the revelation to Moses. And everything else in the law can be seen as an expansion of those ten words. And the original meaning, in line with other law codes at the time, was a very straight imperative. When they say, you shall not, they mean, you must not. This is not a consultation document. Uh, a friend of mine tells of an army major who was reading the passage in his village church one Sunday morning. And the army major began, and God spoke all these words, and then he added, and quite rightly in my opinion. <laughs> God didn't give us ten suggestions inviting our feedback. It is precisely because he is God that we should obey him. I am the Lord your God. So the primary emphasis is to reveal who God is. And that word, just look at it, the word Lord, you see it's in capital letters, L-O-R-D. And that's because actually it's a translation of, in Hebrew, if it was in the alphabet, but it wasn't, of course, but if it were in the alphabet, it's the four letters, Y-H-W-H, which we pronounce as Yahweh or Yehovah. It means literally, the I am. And so here we know straight away from the beginning that God is personal. He's not a mere force or power or influence. And that he is living, active and dynamic. And that he's always been and always will be the I am. So in those deceptively two short words of one letter and two letters in our own language, how much they are saying that God is personal, God is vital, in the literal sense, the source of life, and God is eternal. This is the God who speaks to us. But if the emphasis of these words is primarily on the source, the secondary emphasis is on their purpose. Their purpose, verse 2, is to reveal what he has done. Just read on. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And it's very significant how God chose to reveal himself. He's not the God of philosophical propositions. He's not the God of speculations. Although it's not wrong in itself to philosophize and speculate about God. But he's first and foremost the God of history. We know God primarily because of what he's done and said. So these words are not only set as a summary, but also in a context against a backdrop. And that backdrop is the exodus, the redemption, a word which means the rescue and the deliverance of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And so it's because of his redemptive work, his merciful deliverance, that he has the right to command. Someone put it like this, law is firmly set in the context of grace and from the very beginning. Now, that's really important to see, this relationship between God's, between God's law and God's love. 
The Old Testament has often been misunderstood, misrepresented as putting law first and love second, as if God says, keep my law, and if you do, I will love you. As if God says, my love for you is dependent on you keeping my law. And according to that idea, it's then only the God of the New Testament who reverses the order and comes to us in love. But no, do you see how vital this is? Here in the Old Testament, at the beginning, at the beginning of the law, verse 2 comes before verse 3. His love comes first. It is because God loves us that He longs to show us how best to live. In His love, He rescued the Israelites from slavery. And then God says, because I freed you, let me show you how to live the life of the freed. That's God's purpose here. Now, let me make this personal. Maybe we can think of times in our lives when we've been conscious of God's hand guiding and guarding us. Thank God, we've said, when some calamity has been avoided or some unexpected blessing has come our way. And it wasn't just an empty form of words, thank God. We've honestly felt that in that moment, God was shaping our lives, protecting us, working out His purpose. We've realized that we're indebted to Him. Well, those are the best moments for God to whisper to us. Then live the life of the freed. I think of a few times when I've been saved by a hair's breadth from a frankly fatal road accident. I think of my stupidity when I nearly killed the whole of our family on a closed ski piste due to an avalanche. The checkered tape across the piste clearly said, danger d'avalanche, danger of avalanches. Uh, but I knew better, ducked under the barrier and said, come on, I know this, it looks fine. I persuaded Christine to join me, and so there were two parents on one side of the barrier and three very reluctant children on the other side. But eventually we set off, and all was well until we descended a steep, narrow gully. Blocks of snow the size of cars slipped under us with six-foot-deep cracks coming between them. The whole lot was about to go. Well, it took an hour to sidestep down one by one, very carefully keeping to the, the edge. I was the first down, having led the way, and rather pleased with myself, waiting for the praise for getting us all down safely. Until Emily, our eldest, who was next, skied up to me with a face like thunder. All I can say is, she said, wisdom does not come with age. <laughs> and then she disappeared. Do you, do you have moments like that when you say, thank God? But we're in a much stronger position to live lives of gratitude and love to God than those under the old covenant. Did you realize that? The God we worship has made himself known to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we can look back on a far greater deliverance than the Jews from Egypt. God has come into the world in human form, and he allowed himself to suffer death for our redemption. 
It's not some remote, uninterested God who commands our obedience. He showed His infinite love by coming to our rescue from sin and death. He suffered on the cross to bring us forgiveness and freedom and life forever. People say, why doesn't God do something about all the difficulties in the world? God replies, I did. And I do, if people will call upon me. And I will one day, completely and forever. It'll all be sorted out. Or people say, what has God ever done for me? And God replies, everything. I gave you life, and I offer you new life that will never end, plus the way to find it, plus the way to live it. I act. But thirdly, if the primary emphasis of these words is on the source of the commandments... God, I am. And the secondary is on the purpose, I act. The emphasis, thirdly, is on their content. And the content of the ten words is to reveal what God is like. And more than that, not just what He is like, but what He likes and dislikes. God's nature is revealed to us. And you see, not just as the almighty, personal, ever-living life force, we really come to know what God is like in the following commandments. And that means that human beings can only truly understand God in moral terms. So, He's a God who speaks, a God who acts, but He's also a God who discriminates between right and wrong, good and evil, and these reveal what He Himself is like. Forgive the word I ask. It's rather tame, isn't it? God isn't just requesting, but I couldn't think of another word that begins with the letter A. He demands. He commands. You shall have no other gods before me. Uh, literally, you shall have no other gods to my face. It's an unusual phrase. Used elsewhere of taking a second partner, maybe in an affair, when you already have a wife or husband. A breach of an exclusive relationship. Taking someone else before the face of your married partner. It tells us that God is a jealous God, which we read in verse 5. Uh, jealous isn't a very good translation for us because jealousy in us is always a bad thing. That's because we're one among many. But God is one among one. He's unique. So maybe a better translation would be a zealous God. He will not share his worship with another which is right in any unique situation, just as no husband who truly loved his wife could endure to share her with another man. An idol is a false representation or image of the true God, a distortion of the real God that takes God's place. Let me put it like this. God made us in His image, 
our rebellion is to make God in our image. In the ancient world, and still in some places today, that idol might be a physical image, a totem, made of stone or metal. For us, it's more likely to be a mental image than a metal one. It's often to worship the creation rather than the creator. It's often to worship a good thing in itself, part of God's creation, a person, an ambition, a dream. But to put it in the wrong place in our affections, above God, instead of God. Money, popularity, the praise of others, career compulsion, a political or ideological obsession, a controlling relationship, a famous celebrity. Idolatry sells everything from signed football shirts to Hello magazines. Perhaps the greatest idol is the worship of ourselves, the great God me, an image of a godlike self created in our image to be just like me. Some modern psychology, psychology is a good science in itself, there are psychologists in this congregation doing helpful work, but some psychology has degenerated into the cult of self-worship. Simon Sinek at the HTB Leadership Conference a fortnight ago said, go into any secular bookshop, rows upon rows upon rows of self-help books in long self-help sections. Why no help others sections? Why no help others books? Because it's the worship of self. The pride of Narcissus, who worshipped his own reflection in the water. So, the question to ask ourselves is, do we have any other gods or goddesses? A, a Christian minister I read of lived in a troubled, torn city. Crime was at an all-time high, and especially violent crime with guns. With hit-and-run theft and car crime, it was becoming more and more dangerous. And many of his congregation had taken to arming themselves. The clergy were no exceptions. But as the peace process continued, it became more and more important that the church should set an example of peacemaking. The bishop, a friend of mine, urged that none of the clergy should hold a firearm. And so most gave up their guns. But one minister lived in one of the most violent areas of the city. He didn't agree with the bishop, and he refused to give up his gun. Until one Sunday, he stood in front of his congregation, and he said, For too long I have had confidence in a God apart from the true God. I've trusted in my self-protection. I realize today that I must let go of it. My security has been in something other than God the gun. That story could describe America or South Africa or Nigeria today. But what little G gods do we have before capital G God? Because to worship more than one God is to have a divided life. I become a whole person only when I worship the one true God. 
A simple test is to ask, what's the thing we'd most hate to lose? That's a searching question. That may be our God. One theologian put it like this, your God is that reality which draws from you your deepest feelings and your ultimate concern. What must we do if we're not loving God? Above things or people, if we really want to do so. We must do two things. We must turn and we must take. We must abandon and we must accept. There must be a negative step and a positive one. The negative step is to dethrone the idol. For example, the one way to dethrone the idol of mammon, money, is to give it away, or at least some of it, to give generously to the point that it costs. We get rid of the idol by taking it off the throne of our lives, even ridiculing it, scorning its hold on us, and then we put God back on the throne and yield ourselves wholeheartedly to him. He will not share his throne with any rivals. He, he asks for sovereign control. And the wonderful thing is this. The best thing of all, this is really possible. You can do it. It's not an impossible ideal. There's one difference for us today over and beyond the people of the Old Testament. Through Jesus, God promises us not only forgiveness for the past, but also freedom for the future. Not just rescue from the guilt of our sin, but power to overcome it. So that with New Testament eyes, in the age of the gospel, we see these words not just as commands, which they were, but now as promises. Today, with the gift and power of the Holy Spirit within you, you shall have no other gods. You shall not make for yourself an idol. And later on, you shall not murder or steal or lie. Do you see, the shall, for us, can become a promise. You begin to read these words differently. You really shall. You really shall not. Because instead of the law being on the outside of us, commanding us, but convicting us because we're unable to keep it, now the law is on the inside, written on our hearts, not on tablets of stone. God lives in us by His Spirit. And so now He can work not from the outside in, but from the inside out. And the prophets had foreseen this, Ezekiel, when he said, God says, I will put my spirit in you. And Jeremiah, when he said, God says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Do you see, God does this by internalizing what had been external. If you go hiking up a mountain, you may fill a rucksack uh, with provisions for the day, for your sandwiches and your um, water, your drink, whatever it is. And you put it on your back as you set out, and initially it weighs you down and slows you up. 
But as you go on hiking through the day and eat and drink up your provisions, what was a burden on the outside becomes a power to keep you going on the inside. And so it is, what was external written on tablets of stone becomes internal written on our hearts. What was a demand from the outside becomes a desire from the inside. You see, God knows the only way to transform people and communities ultimately, profoundly, is a work not from the outside in, but from the inside out. So what was I can't becomes I can. What was a burden I could not carry becomes a blessing. And it's a promise of guidelines for a successful life and a harmonious society. That's how we're going to read these ten words over the coming weeks. Let's stand, shall we? And appropriately, we come to remember the cross where Jesus died for our redemption. And this morning bids us to come, to eat and drink, and then live the life of the freed. The Lord is here. His Spirit is with us. Lift up your hearts. We lift them to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the